Nehemiah 9, 38, and then picking up again in 28 through uh, 39. (laughs) All right. Check one. All right. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Um, And what we're skipping is a bunch of names. So extra credit if you want. Uh, Verse 28, uh, 1028. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths and that new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of of the the Lord our God, as is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds, and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, <clears throat> new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles <clears throat> for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thank you. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, apply this word uh, to our hearts. Uh, teach us uh, now. Holy Spirit, as we come to the table, uh, thank you for this table and what it represents. Uh, may it, that reality explode in our hearts anew uh, as we partake of this sacrament. In your name, amen.
So uh, when, when is the best time for you to make a big promise? Like, I want you to think about that. Like, what times in your life have you found yourself making big, and in this case, public promises um, of some sort? And I was meditating on that because that's what's happening here. The Israelites, uh, you know, the city's rebuilt. Uh, the temple uh, is being, you know, rebuilt. They're, they're, they're getting back into the rhythms that God's called us to, and they're, they're making huge, huge promises. And I was thinking about this and thinking, isn't it when you're feeling really deeply, like when your heart is moved to a very deep level, that that's when promises most easily flow out of your mouth, right? Like weddings, uh, that's an easy target here. But, you know, uh, it's, you're at the pinnacle of romantic love, right? You love one another so deeply, right? People, uh, not to criticize those who choose to write their vows, but uh, those who've written your vows, I mean, you write these insane promises to one another that you're actually saying out loud in front of other people, like, I'm going to do this. I feel so deeply, I know I can do this, right? So sometimes it's when we're feeling very deeply in a good way, but sometimes, I don't know about you, for me, it's also when we've blown it big time, right? That when We've got caught in something that we know that we've done is wrong. That's when all the promises come out, right? Like, I entered a contract with my father when I was a young kid, probably the age of some of you right here. I was really into karate because that's when Karate Kid was amazing, right? That's like straight in the Daniel, was it Daniel Russo? La Russo. Daniel LaRusso era, right? And... I had gotten some rubber Chinese throwing stars that back in the day, you didn't order these off Amazon. You got magazines and you had to fill out little cards and send them away and wait like weeks and months in order to get your rubber throwing stars. And the contract was with my father that I would not take these Chinese throwing stars to church. I could take them anywhere else, do anything with them, but I would not bring them to church. Guess what I did? I brought them to church. Guess where I threw them? I threw them in church, in the gymnasium. And guess what happened? My father, keeping his end of our covenant, uh, said, if you do this, you will never get them back. And I found those throwing stars in my parents' closet about four years ago. <laughs> and I asked for them, and he said to me, I meant never. Well, when he took him, I promised, I promised, Dad, I promise, I promise, I promise, I won't do it again. I won't bring him to a church again. Never got that chance, right? So the two things we're going to talk about this morning, promise makers, right? That there's a part of us that wants to make these sort of promises. And then the second thing, the grace to keep promises and the grace when we don't. Okay? Those are the two things. Promise makers. And then secondly, grace to keep promises and grace when we don't. Promise makers. So what's happening in context, if you haven't been here, they, what, what Treva just read is they're, they're coming out of chapter 8 where they've basically, cities rebuilt and they ask Ezra, stand up and read the law. And he stands up for six hours and reads, you know, basically the Old Testament Torah to them. And that led them, this is what Brant preached on last week, uh, to a place of deep conviction over their sin, over their generational sin. Like the law was held up like a mirror for them and they realized, oh my goodness, 
we have, <laughs> we've not just kind of fallen short, we have blown it, right? Which led to confession. They confessed that sin, right? Their hearts in this moment, what we're seeing right now, their hearts are genuinely moved. They, they feel the depth of the separation that's between them and God. They see, hey, we, we've neglected. We, not just we've done it occasionally. We are a people of neglect. We have neglected what is most important. And so as a result, as a body of believers, they're, they're exhibiting this new collective will. They, they keep saying this, right? We promise, we assume, we will. This new collective will, we are going to live in the ways that God has directed us, what he's called us to do in this Mosaic covenant that was given to Moses long before these folks were alive, right? And we're no longer going to neglect the house of the Lord or the commands of the Lord. But in this moment, this moment of sobriety, this moment of sanity, right? We're going to embrace God's commands and his rhythms for our life. What they're doing right now, and this isn't the only place this is done in scriptures is this is called a covenant renewal act. And what you're going to do if you're in Christ in this morning when you come to this table, you know, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is a covenant renewal act, right? Where we experience the relationship of the covenant. They're, they're renewing their wedding vows effectively to the Lord again. That's what he says in 938. In view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement, right? This is, this is serious. This is weighty. Binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And what do they promise? They take, they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of our God, and to obey carefully all the commands, right? Regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. We're going to obey it all. Many commentators actually believe that they were actually saying some things below that were not only just what the law required of them, but they were going beyond. It was this expression of like, not only are we not going to blow it again, we're going to go beyond even what you're asking, Lord, because we're so dedicated to you, right? They take this oath and they receive, if they break it, a curse. We are going to obey. This is a moment of, of real personal conviction. There's a moment here of public accountability. We're doing something. We're taking vows in public and then they got really practical. They got really specific with what they said they were going to do. Now, we could get into, I mean, this obviously is not everything in the Mosaic Law, but here are just some of the things that they say we're going to commit to doing this. They say that we're going to commit to a new Sabbath rhythm in our lives, something that you called us to, Lord. And what was the Sabbath? It was a day a week, right? where they were to cease from their labor and to rest and to renew and to worship the Lord by acknowledging that our dependence is on Him for everything. And this wasn't even just something that was given in the Mosaic Law. It reflects all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? When God created the world and God Himself rested from His work on the seventh day. And so those who are His unique people, those who were created in His image to reflect Him to the world around Him, Taking a Sabbath was one of the absolute greatest ways that as a body of people, they said to the world, we actually follow God. It was like a silent billboard by saying, we're going to stop. When the rest of the world doesn't stop, right? They talk about it in here. There's all this trading and commerce and everything going on on the Sabbath. And, and the Israelites were called to live differently. And that was one of the big ways that they were going to witness to the world. 
they were going to observe the Sabbath because they were set apart. It reminds me of, I know everyone has opinions about Chick-fil-A, what sauces you like. Kidding. You can't have an opinion about Chick-fil-A other than it's wonderful, right? Yeah. Truett Cathy, I was thinking about him. Obviously, they've made a huge stand on closing on Sundays. Kanye even writes songs about it, right? I read this in one of his books. He says this. This is Truett Cathy. Closing our business on Sunday, the Lord's Day, is our way of honoring God and showing our loyalty to Him. My brother and Ben and I first closed our first restaurant on Sunday after we opened in 1946, and my children have committed to closing our restaurants on Sundays long after I'm gone. Why? I believe God honors our decision, but this, and sets before us unexpected opportunities. By setting this aside, something unexpected comes into our lives. Unexpected opportunities to do greater work for him because of that loyalty. He believes that, right? Believes it so deeply. I think Wall Street Journal estimated that Chick-fil-A loses $1.2 billion a year by being closed on Sunday. They committed to new Sabbath rhythms. They committed to first fruit giving. That's all throughout here, right? Which is a financial decision. The Lord and what he calls me to do with what I have, he's going to get it first. He's going to get the first of my money, or in this case, my wine, my grain, whatever I had that was actually used to barter and trade. A tenth of that is going to go to the Lord. We're not going to neglect the house of the Lord while taking care of our house is effectively what they're saying here. And they're acknowledging through that what? They're displaying something that all I have, this is what Scripture teaches us, all I have is His anyways, right? Everything that I have is a gift of His grace to me, and I'm simply a steward. That's what I'm called to be, a steward of what He's given me, giving first to Him and then to the things that He calls us to give to. One of those practices was this practice of canceling debts. He talks about it in here, which is the year of Jubilee, right? He called all of Israel that every seventh year, everyone who is in indentured servitude, any sort of debt, release them. Again, I mean, it's crazy practices if we think about this, right? Imagine if you were seven years into your mortgage and your bank called and said, hey, <laughs> we're a Christian bank, year of Jubilee, bud, you're off the hook. You know, that, whatever it is now, $1.2 million you have to have to live in Nashville, it's all gone. But they were doing that. We're going to commit to do that. We're going to commit to canceling debts. Marriage, they're not going to, they promised to not intermarry. We could talk about this, but... That was one of the ways that historically led to a lukewarm commitment to the Lord. It was religious pluralism, right? And on and on and on. God is stirring them to recommit to his will, to his way as his people. And they're doing it in a personal, public, and very practical way. And they're writing it down, and they're putting their seals on it and saying, all right, we're promising to do this. And if we don't, bring the curse. They become a we-will community. This law that God has called us to live out, he, he makes up the terms. This is what we're going to follow. We're going to embrace his prescription for our lives because he practically knows what's best for us. And if we don't, if we don't live up to what we're promising right now, we accept the consequences. It's heavy. We accept the curse. Now, 
I was thinking about this, and especially coming out of all this confession of historical sin, I'm not sure where they got the confidence to make this sort of a promise. If you really think about it, if you spent that whole chapter 9 basically saying like, hey, our fathers, 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 fathers have blown it, have blown it, have blown it. And they're, they're recapturing and confessing their history. They've just confessed that basically this is who we are, not just we've made some mistakes. We are chronic promise breakers, right? That that's our character, that that's our nature is to not keep our word to the Lord. And it's easy to, to see that in chapter 9, but they also confess something else along with their chronic promise breaking. And it's encapsulated in 9.17. They confessed that, that God is different than that. That yes, our character is to be chronic promise breakers, but his character is to be chronic promise keepers, right? His character is this, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and therefore you did not desert us. So they confessed about their sin, but they also confessed this about the Lord. This is who you are. Because you love this way, because you're gracious this way, because you're compassionate this this way, you don't desert us. Even when we desert you, you're not a deserter. They confessed that. And when you confess that, because if you're in Christ this morning, whether, whether you're feeling that this morning or not, that's who he is. All of the shame that you feel because of all of the sins that you have committed and the sins that you will commit, right? All of that shame, his love and his forgiveness and his grace is greater than all of that. Is that is what that is saying. And if you're in Christ, that's our confession. And if that's true, if we confess that, then guess what? The law, the law of God takes on a different practical meaning for you and for me this morning. That's why David can pray in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It doesn't crush the soul, it refreshes the soul. How does the law refresh the soul? Well, what the law does now, because I know I can't live up to it, and I don't keep my promises, that's what we confessed, right? It guides me and teaches me now in the ways that I can live in his love for me because I've also confessed because of who he is, I can't lose his love for me. Why? Because he's forgiving. He's gracious and he's compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love and he's not a deserter. So they can return to the law, right? Because the law has served what? Calvin summed this up. The law served as a mirror. It showed them their sin. But the law can also be a restraint and a guide for them now, right? Because they aren't confused in this moment at least and God is never confused, I know what sin has done to you. Not just the sins you've committed, I know what it's done to you. I know that without my grace intervening, you will eventually gravitate towards a disordered heart and a disordered love. You will put other things first other than me. You will put you first. That's why Jesus in Matthew 22 summed up the law when he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets 
hang on these two commandments. What is he saying? He's saying if you take everything in the Old Testament law and you sum it all up, it's all about this. This is what the heart of the law was really pointing to. That as those who are created by God and for God, we are made. You are made. Your hearts were designed to love God and put him first above all else. And putting him first, that's what's best for us. Like he's not some megalomaniac who needs us to put him first so he feels good about himself. He's not insecure like that. He's saying, no, 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 you putting me first is what's best for you. We're made to love God above all else, to put him first. And when we do, the fruit of that, when we put him first, what we first experience is his love for us, right? And with that love, we love others as we love ourselves. And so at this moment, because they're sobered by their sin, they're living in re, like reality. They can recommit to the Lord, but not because of their character, but because of His. You see that? The significance of that? They can acknowledge with real honesty when we're Lord of our own lives, when we walk away from the ways you've called us to live, we make a mess of our lives. That's why we were in captivity in the first place. And they can claim What's true, which is that you're not called us to keep this law because it's good for you, God. You've called us to keep this because it's what's good for us. It's like my mom, I used to have a problem with eating garlic bread. I love, who loves garlic bread? Yes. Get your hands up, right? My mom had to put a garlic bread limit on me at one point uh, because one time, and this was back, I don't know if they even still make these things, Back when I was a kid, they had those like foily loaves that you didn't have to do anything. You just jammed those suckers in the oven. And I mean, they had like injected them with like a pound and a half of garlic butter. And I ate so much garlic bread one night that the next morning when my mom came to get me out of bed for school, my sheets were yellow because I had sweat garlic all night into my bedroom. She said when she opened the door, she was like, oh, Lord, Right? So Dave Burton had a two-bread limit after that point, right? Now, did it hurt me? No, but what? why did my mom put the limit on? It wasn't for her. She put it on for me, right? In this moment of sobriety, they're, they're recommitting to what God's called them to. And I just want, I want you to know this. We'll get to this in Nehemiah. By the end of Nehemiah, they would already go back on some of these promises. Two chapters. They're already breaking some of their promises. So if that's the case, I want to ask this as we get ready to come to the table. Where does that leave us, right? Like what should be our response to what we see going on here? Because I don't know about you, but I can say this very honestly about myself. There have been places in my life, uh, repeat sins, areas of struggle, and um, where I've blown it so many times that I can get to this place where I say, what's the use? I, I'm, I'm not going to make any more recommitments. Like, I've, I've had the camp high experience enough times, right? And I, I'll push all my chips onto Jesus' plate, and pretty soon I'll rip them all off, right? And so what, 
what's the prom, you know, like what's, what's the purpose? Shame has kind of won, right? I have no pride left because I, I've tried in my own strength to recommit and to recommit. Well, I'd encourage us this as we come to the table. And that's the second thing, that in Christ we have grace to keep our promises and we have grace when we don't, okay? Grace to keep our promises and grace when we don't. So should we not make promises or commitments? I would say to us this, no. I think it is good for our hearts to be stirred, right? Ecclesiastes says a sad face is good for the heart because out of your heart, everything flows. So guard your heart. So it's good for our hearts to be stirred and to renew our commitments. But when I fail at keeping them perfectly, yes, you will. And what happens when we fail to keep our promises? Well, I'll just tell you this. On this side of Christ's death and resurrection, this oath and curse thing that they took, um, Jesus took that for you. We don't get the curse, right? Romans 8 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or what I read to call us to worship I will, those who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame, is what that says. So because of Christ, and what did Christ do? He fulfilled. He's the one who said, I'll keep it all perfectly for them, right? I will obey all of it, completely, perfectly, eternally. It's fulfilled. The law's demands for us. And now, by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this new heart and this new spirit that he's given us, he's made his home in us, because of that truth, we can recommit. You and I can recommit because of who the Lord is, not because of who we are. We can recommit because of his character and because of his unfailing love, not because of ours. We have grace to fully keep our promises, to be doing that more and more, and we have grace when we fail to do so. Let me just tell you about the grace to fully keep, okay? Some of you may not feel like I have the power to keep my promises. How do we more fully keep our word to the Lord? First and foremost is this, by experiencing how much he's kept his word to me. That's what scripture says, right? John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? Remain in my love for you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So apart from remaining in my love for you, all of your promises are devoid of the power that you need to have to keep your promises. But in me, you have that. 1 Peter 2.9, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Not my divine power, his divine power. Ezekiel 36, he prophesied about this. If you're going to follow my ways and keep my decrees, you're going to need to have a new spirit and a new heart that I'm going to have to give you, right? A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. So when we come to this table, to this covenant renewal act, we don't do this, um, you know, in some ways to make something true. We come to this table to experience what is true. That's why he says, do it often. It's a command for you because it's good for you to taste my grace again. That's why worship, and I know you all are here, but this is one of the things I would ask you all to pray about. If you had one area of your life that you're wrestling with, would I recommit? Would you recommit to coming here every week that you can? 
And I'm not saying that to shame you at all. I'm saying that in the context of what we're talking about, which is this, he's saying, do you understand how badly you need to experience my love for you? And this thing called worship, Sabbath, this thing that we're doing here right now is good for your heart because it reminds you and reorients you to the truth. Because if we don't have this, my heart is, like we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I leave you, prone to leave the God I love. This is what draws us back to him. He gives us grace to keep our promises. When I keep my promises, when I keep my recommitments, it's because of his grace at work in me, not because of my inherent goodness. It's, it's because of my inherited goodness. I inherit it from him. And what this table proclaims is this. When I fail to keep them, because he knows I'm going to fail to keep them. He knows I'm not going to keep it perfectly. It's his same grace that forgives and sustains me in that failure. That is the gospel. I'm freed to obey because of his grace and to follow, and I'm freed from the curse, and I'm forgiven when I don't obey because of his grace. So, I want you to pause for a moment. We're going to come to the table. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians says this, I want you to examine your hearts before you come to the table of the Lord so as not to take this meal in a cavalier way or to eat, he says, eat and drink judgment on yourself. Because when you come to this table, if you're in Christ, this is the meal that proclaims what? I could not keep my promise. <laughs> I couldn't keep the oath that these people were saying they were going to keep. And therefore, I deserve the curse, Right? I deserve the wages of sin, which is death. But Jesus stepped in between that, right? That we might, through his obedience, not our own, have eternal life. So because that's true, because we're living under that umbrella of grace, right? I can actually ask the Lord, and maybe you need to ask him at the table, where are you calling me to deeper repentance, and where are you calling me to recommit? Right? Where are you calling me to covenant renewal with you and with God's people? Where am I neglecting what you've called me to not neglect? With you, Lord, or with others? And where are you calling my heart to recommit, even if it's costly? Because all of these commitments, these were costly commitments. It cost them their time. It cost them their money. It cost them the comfortable rhythms of their lives, right? Where are you calling me to recommit? So in Christ, we come to this table, run to this table, feed on his grace and his mercy. If you're not in Christ this morning, uh, I'd, I'd ask you to really consider uh, where are you trying to live up to and live into keeping it all together for God in a way that he's saying, you can't do that. I know you can't do that. Um, step into my grace and step into my love and step into my forgiveness and then live obediently out of that place not live obediently trying to earn something that you already have. All right, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, and then I'll pray for us. When you're ready, uh, there'll be people up here ready to serve you. Come forward, put out your hands, um, and encourage you to pray. Ask the Lord to reveal to you in your heart some of this stuff. Uh, if you're not taking communion, if one of your kids is coming up with you, it's a great opportunity for them to be a part of what the Lord's uh, doing in your life, but just help the people serving know if your child is or isn't taking uh, communion. 
Um, if you need prayer, cross your arms. Somebody would be happy to pray for you. Uh, if you come down kind of these center aisles and then go out the sides, there's your trash cans there for your cups, okay? So this is 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for repentance. Uh, thank you for moments of sober sanity uh, where we see that uh, we are chronic promise breakers. We're chronic self-justifiers. We, we really don't uh, comprehend the depth of your mercy and your grace. Uh, but in moments like this, uh, Lord... You lead us at times to a real clear picture of it. Thank you that um, this table is a new covenant in your blood and that you, uh, you obeyed to fulfill all the law uh, that the law required so that we don't have to live under the curse of the law anymore, uh, but we actually are freed now um, to follow you into your ways uh, and given everything we need by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that. So may we taste and, and see your goodness today at this table. Uh, may you stir our hearts to places where we need to recommit, um, not because we're going to do it perfectly, but because uh, you did it perfectly, uh, so we can continue to move in that direction and trust that even when we don't, uh, your grace is enough. We love you. In your name, amen.